Welcome to the We Go There podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... Exactly. We go there. Because no topic should be too taboo, especially when it comes to women's health. We ask the questions you may be too afraid to ask and interview the experts to get the answers you need. So we're doing this completely unfiltered. 100%. Okay, let's go there. So today we have a really interesting interview. We're going to be talking with Michelle Kapler. She's a certified life coach, but she also happens to be a reproductive acupuncturist and someone I know who personally helped me through my own fertility journey and IVF. So Michelle actually had quite a perfect life, quote unquote, and career on paper, but she was drinking a lot to cope with stress as a business owner, as a mom. And she's realized that there's a huge need for a lot of women to get a handle on their drinking. And so we're going to talk with her today about how she is really making a difference in the lives of women and people everywhere, really, who have drinking stuff going on. So let's, let's dive into this. Love it. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Great to, great to see you and welcome to We Go There. So let's get into it. Where should we start? Do you want to tell us your story a little bit? I think that's probably the best place to start and how you've now come to help people, you know, specialize in helping people to cope with drinking. Yeah, sounds great. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Michelle Kapler. And um, I could spend some time going over my professional resume. But what's probably going to be more interesting for your audience is that I'm a person who's had a pretty intense relationship with my drinking over the years. Um, through my 20s and my early 30s, and kind of into that early motherhood phase, which quite frankly, I'm still in my kids are three and seven. Um, I was a heavy drinker for all of those years. I drank a lot. Like in my heaviest days, I was averaging a bottle a night, probably more on the weekend. Um, But the interesting thing is that my life wasn't destroyed because of it, not in the kind of stereotypical classical sense when you think about alcoholism and where people are, you know, drinking themselves under a bridge and getting their kids taken away and losing their job and driving drunk and wrapping their car around a tree, like none of that bad stuff was happening. I was highly functioning and I looked really great on paper, like Nikki said, and I was highly successful in my professional field. I was highly respected in my professional field. I was highly specialized. I owned a busy reproductive acupuncture clinic in Toronto. And I say that in the past tense, but I still own it just in case everybody's wondering, you know, I was creating jobs for women and I was helping a lot of people in my patient base. I had two beautiful children and I was in a loving marriage, but yet on the inside, I was just always consumed with this dark cloud hanging over my head, which was, you know, coming from drinking a lot. Um, And so it was not only the drinking itself, which I was doing daily. It was also recovering from drinking a lot. It was also the internal dialogue of beating myself up because I felt like I couldn't get a handle on my drinking. It was spending all of my time and energy questioning my drinking and am I an alcoholic and the shame and it was just all consuming. And so it kind of came to a head in the beginning of the pandemic. And so it was about, I don't know, a couple weeks in, I think it was end of March and we were all just diving into comfort. I think a lot of us at that time, we were doing 
like anything we needed to do to deal with the stress of what was going on. There was so much uncertainty. There was so much anxiety. And I think this is kind of a generalized theme, even though I can really only speak to my own personal experience. And so I found myself in a position where my drinking kind of shot up to the next level. And it was combined with other forms of self-medication. Like I wasn't just drinking a bottle of wine every night. I was also eating a six pack of cupcakes and binging on Tiger King. And like, there was all this like extreme comfort. And so it was this cycle of engaging in that behavior and also simultaneously beating myself up because of it. And telling myself, like, there's something wrong with you and you should be able to get a handle on this and you're a bad person. And do your kids see what you're doing? And does your husband think you're a bad person? And all of this really tumultuous and torturous inner dialogue. And so I I was having this thought one morning when I was super hungover and I was like, okay, I need to make a decision here. I either need to completely give myself permission to just do whatever I need to do in the moment to feel comfortable. And that was through, you know, eating indulgently or drinking a lot or binging on Netflix or whatever made sense to me in the moment and and offered me that comfort. Um, So I could either just give myself permission to be able to do that because it was an extraordinarily stressful time for a lot of us. Um, So I could either do that and just renounce telling myself that I'm a bad human because of doing that, or I can choose to just stop all of it and kind of lean into more of a self-love and health and, you know, kind of practicing what I preach as a health practitioner and kind of leaning into that side of things. And so I made the decision to do the latter, obviously. (laughs) And um, it was kind of a culmination of a bunch of different things um, that helped me be successful. Um, I didn't go the classical route of joining AA or going to meetings or anything like that, um, because I really didn't identify with that. I didn't identify as a person under that definition of what alcoholism is. Um, So I used therapy. Um, I went to therapy with my husband. I did my own individual therapy. Um, I read a lot of books. I kind of found this windy way to figure out my brain and how it works and, you know, really dove into the habit research behind um, addiction and alcohol in particular. Um, I started following a lot of really incredible people who were talking about it in the space where they did it in a way that wasn't kind of the conventional go to AA meetings and get quote sober. Um, there were a lot of really interesting takes on it that were different from that. And then eventually I found life coaching, which was really the thing that kind of put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, where I found a sustainable way of managing my mind and retraining my brain essentially to exist without alcohol. And it's interesting because when I was drinking, I felt so much terror and anxiety and even just preemptive boredom over the idea of just doing life without having without having that tool like I just felt so much anticipatory stress over the idea of not having alcohol in my life and I you know I think about if I went back and could talk to myself three years ago I'd be like really it's amazing on the other side your life is just better than you could have ever imagined because you're no longer taking up so much space in your brain both physically and you know conversationally with with myself and so 
I just discovered that this amazing life was to be had. And now I want to share that idea with other people if they're interested in taking that journey. So that's what I do now on the side as my coaching business. I, I love hearing your story and it rings true, I think, for so many people who use it. I love that you mentioned it was it's for comfort, right? Especially with stress and it's a coping mechanism. Um, and I think it's pretty common, right? Like we, we were talking about mommy wine culture and it's like, you know, and I'll, I'll be honest, like I make jokes about it. Um, I'm not, I don't actually drink a lot at all. So I don't think, but I can't remember the last time I had a glass of wine, maybe like last month, but that's not to say, I don't also make jokes about it. Like someone will send me a, a DM or a, you know, a, a meme and I'm like, yeah, man, got to get the wine, these kids, you know? So it's just a it sort of feels harmless, but I love your thoughts on that. Sure, of course. So I want to start by saying that it's not my permission that nobody should drink. There's a lot of people in the alcohol-free space that are saying that alcohol is poison and it causes cancer and nobody should ingest it. And that's absolutely not my position. I'm much more of a, hey, you do you, I'll do me. Let's take an individualized approach to this. So I just want to start with that. Um, And then in terms of mommy wine culture, I don't think it's necessarily... I mean, yeah, it might be harmful if you're kind of zooming out to a big picture perspective, but I'm much more interested in let's question our individual relationship to that. And let's also recognize that that dialogue of like, mommy needs her wine glass that's huge. And it's like, you know, mommy juice at the end of a stressful day, or I have to, you know, the the basis of mommy wine culture is basically I need to drink to be able to tolerate parenthood. That's kind of the underlying message. That's actually a multi-million dollar industry that's aimed at getting this, you know, pretty gettable demographic of women who, you know, there are a lot of markets that have tapped into it. And yeah, the, uh, and, you know, the idea that there's a lot of money to be made from these people. And that's actually the basis of where this conversation is coming from. So I just think it's important to acknowledge that that's a part of the picture that we're actually being sold this idea that we need to be able to, that we need to have this thing where we ingest this substance and use this thing outside of ourselves to be able to tolerate this experience of having children. That's an inch. I mean, I'm just thinking about like some of the desperate housewives or did not the, not the real, sorry, the real housewives. Don't they all have like their own branded alcohol now? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, oh, des- yeah. the desperate housewives <laughs> probably have their own brand too, if we're being honest. Real housewives. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they all have like either wine or, I mean, I love skinny vodka or. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So how much, yeah, and I, like, I do enjoy a cocktail. I'm pregnant with twins right now, so it's sounding even better to me right now because I do enjoy, you know, a nice cocktail and to wind down and things like that. And definitely I've I've been with my friends and we get together and we'll have, you know, drinks and our kids will play and things like that. So what's the... And and I totally appreciate you saying like, it's not, you know, you're like a you do you and I'll do me type, uh, you know, rationale around it. What's too much like in your research and better understanding of, of this, at what point does someone look at, um, you know, from a bird's eye view, what their intake is and say like, okay, that's, you know, that's a little too much. And maybe I need to start thinking about why I'm 
why I need this much alcohol, I guess. Yeah, of course. And that's a really good question. And if you, if you think about it critically, it's all, it's obviously going to be an individual thing. Um, but there are, you know, definitions according to the CDC of how much is too much. So um, just to kind of define the definition, uh, binge drinking is defined as um, for women, it's four or more drinks during a single occasion. For men, it's five or more drinks during a single occasion. And this is kind of the most common form of excessive drinking. Um, Again, that's binge drinking. And then heavy drinking is defined as consuming eight or more drinks per week for women and 15 or more drinks per week for men. And, you know, the question is a little complicated because yes, there are medical and statistical guidelines to answer this question. However, I think we also have to take into account the individual circumstances that play into the equation, even on a physiological level. So a good example of this is body size. Bodies come in all shapes and sizes and can't really be addressed with a one size fits all approach in any form of medicine, in my opinion. So for example, somebody who's five foot one and a hundred pounds is probably going to have different limits than somebody who's 5'10 and 250 pounds. We also have to factor in things like level of physical activity, how hydrated somebody is that day, their general tolerance, there's genetic factors that we have to look like. And even someone's mindset about alcohol can make a really big difference in determining how much is too much. I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to getting honest with yourself and asking yourself if you're creating negative consequences in your life that are related to your drinking. So, you know, if we're just to pick a number, like I have 20 drinks a week, but I feel totally fine about my relationship with alcohol. My health is not suffering as a result of it. My relationships aren't suffering as a result of it. I don't feel bad about myself as a result of it. Then that's really different than somebody who might be having a smaller number of drinks, but they're like beating themselves up like I was, um, or they're actually having health consequences because of it. So for example, my sleep was just awful. When I was a heavy drinker, I suffered from pretty intense insomnia and that's still an ongoing thing for me. Um, goodness knows why, maybe a result of my drinking, maybe not. Um, but if you're having things come up for you like that, then maybe the number doesn't matter so much. Maybe it's more about how you are personally relating to your habit. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that's a nice, like in a different way of approaching it versus breaking it down by the numbers. It's more like, how, how do you feel? Are you like you said, beating yourself up about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And that's the, I mean, there's a lot of beauty and amazing things that come from scientific research and it is important, but it's also limited because human behavior and human physiology is so varied. I mean, even between the three of us, we probably have a lot of different, even though we're all similar, like we're thin white women, we'd still all have a lot of, you know, differences in our physiology and would probably have different uh, reactions to alcohol and different mindsets when it comes to alcohol. So just because the three of us might be having 15 drinks a week or more, doesn't mean that we're going to have the same relationship to it. So it's important to take that into account that we can't just use the statistics. We need to use them to kind of inform our personal relationship to things. Right. I want to talk about two things. First of all, in the, when you were first sharing your story, you mentioned your brain. And I think that that's a really interesting thing to talk about as it relates to using alcohol as a coping strategy, but also like, how does it impact your brain? And, and what I heard when you were sharing your story was that 
part of you overcoming this addiction was really, really educating yourself on the brain and your own sort of mental um, well-being. So I'd love you to dive into that if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. So I would say my overall message when it comes to learning the neuroscience behind addiction, and that can be applied to any addictive behavior. We don't have to, like alcohol isn't singularly different than other addictions in this context. So we could be looking at overeating. We could be looking at over drinking. I mean, people can get addicted to anything really. I mean, there are people who are addicted to quote positive behaviors as well. There are people who overexercise. There are people who overwork. Um, and it's all, it all comes back to this kind of, uh, comfort relationship, uh, with your own brain and the dopamine cycles that happen within that relationship. And so I found that learning about the neuroscience behind how addiction actually works in the brain was an incredibly important and freeing part of the process for me. Because when you learn about how addiction works in the brain and how it's actually a mechanism that's designed to help our survival as a species, um, it actually kind of allows you to step out of that idea that because you drink a lot or you know, overwork or overexercise or use pornography or gamble or shop online or overuse social media. It's all kind of the same mechanism. Just because you're doing that, it doesn't mean that you're a garbage human that has a broken brain. And that was a really important thing for me to learn that it's like, no, this is actually a normal thing for the brain to do in habit building. Because, you know, if we kind of look back throughout history, these were mechanisms that actually kept us alive. The brain wanted us to reach for these things like warmth, like sugar, like sex, like community, all of these things. But in the modern context, they're kind of readily available in infinite quantities. And our brains and the chemistry in our brains hasn't really caught up to that modern context. So if we kind of look at it that way, it allows us to kind of take a step back from the beating ourselves up over the habits that we formed. And it also gives us the opportunity to realize that, well, if we were able to develop this habit, we can probably reverse it as well, which is really different than the classic conversation from, let's say, Alcoholics Anonymous, where their motto from the big book is, you are inherently flawed, your brain has a disease, you're basically a bad human, you have to sit down and shut up and get humble, you have to apologize for all of your sins. That's a very different conversation than like, hey, your neurochemistry is actually working the way it's supposed to, and you just developed a habit. And maybe we can work on changing that through behavioral and therapy and, and thought work. That's powerful because I'm hearing you're taking the shame out of it. And the shame can be so paralyzing for people, can't it? Well, it was the shame that kept me drinking probably 10 years longer than I would have liked. You know, I, I knew that I had a drinking problem for a good decade before I actually decided to change it. And it was because, well, number one, there was nobody else out there that was talking about drinking like this. It was either you're a full-blown alcoholic or you're quote normal and you can have a normal never problematic relationship to alcohol. It's just always rainbows and daisies and butterflies and fun. And you can, you know, just drink whenever you want to and it's fine. Or you're like this full-blown 
problematic, diseased human. And there was kind of nobody in between talking about that. But what I've learned since is that there's a lot of people that exist on the inside of that spectrum. Mm, Absolutely. And how long from when you really recognized, like you said, you knew you had a problem for a long time, but really came to terms with it and said, like, I need to do something about this until you really being feeling free from alcohol. How long is that process for you? Is it ongoing every day? I would say that I knew I had a problem and there was, I guess, that desire to change it again for close to a decade. Um, And it, it took me that long to really, it's kind of like any habit change or any kind of change you make at all. I mean, really the, the scale has to tip where the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of having to change because you're kind of suffering either way, but you're just getting different results. And so I just chose, I just eventually got to a place where I was like, it's probably actually going to be easier for me to make a change than to stay the way I am. And that's going to be different for everybody. And to actually talk about the length of time in a tangible way, again, yeah, I probably like questioned myself and beat myself up for a good 10 years. And then I mean, I don't think I really had, I wasn't a severe enough drinker to go through a detox or anything like that. I didn't have physical symptoms of of withdrawal. Um, Mind you, at the same time, I was doing it in conjunction with with a dietary cleanse. I used to do that a lot where I was drinking and I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go on a cleanse and I'm going to like eat all this healthy food and not drink. And I'm going to cleanse my way out of my drinking problem. And I would kind of do that a lot. And then, but I wasn't doing the thought work behind it. So I would just go right back to drinking as soon as the quote cleanse was over. Um, So I happened to do it during that time. So I expected to feel a little bit off. Um, But I don't know. How long did it take me to feel confident? I don't know. Maybe six months. Depends on the day. Yeah. (laughs) Depends on the day. Yeah, true. So yeah. you don't you don't drink at all anymore, and I I've sh- I've seen your po- social media posts, and, and I mean you're very open about your journey, which is amazing. But do you ever get to like? I mean, what would you say to someone who says to you, Michelle, I know I drink too much, I know I need to get a handle on it, but I really don't want to be completely sober. Like I want to get to a place where I can go to the you know have go for dinner with my partner and have a glass of wine, or go to the out with my girlfriends or the barbecue or whatever. So how because you're completely like you don't you're sober right now, like you don't drink at all. But what yeah. how does someone navigate it if they're like their goal isn't to be completely sober? Their goal is to just turn it down a bit. Yeah, I hear that. And what I want to say is that it's totally possible to do that kind of second thing that you were talking about, where you just, I I think in the, in our space, we would call it moderation as opposed to abstinence. Um, You know, I don't drink, um, but it's not because I tell myself that I can't. So if I wanted to have a drink at this point, I think I could. Um, I just don't want to, because I don't want to go a single day at this point in my life. I don't want to go a single day without all of that amazing, beautiful extra space in my brain. I just don't want to have to deal with all of the shit that, sorry, can I swear? I'm sorry. Oh yeah. <laughs> sure can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, just, Absolutely. I just, I just don't want to deal with all of the, the grossness that would come after for me, both physically and, and emotionally. Um, but I'm not a person who's just renounced drinking for the rest of my life. I think at some point I might have a drink again. I I have no idea, but at this point in time, I just don't want to. At the same time, I I know that there 
are people who don't want to completely quit. And I do advocate for a period of abstinence, like taking a a full break, because I think it just makes the process of rewiring your brain a lot more straightforward. Uh, When I work with my clients, I take them through a process of actually, it's a combination of thought work and cognitive behavioral stuff um, to be able to actually reroute the habit and rewire the pathways in their brain. And I, I, it's my thought that it's more straightforward if you're not trying to drink at the same time. It probably can be done. I don't want to leave that off the table. I think there are people who do it. Um, But I do think eventually, if you change the way your brain works, you're not going to be the same anyway. So theoretically, you could have a drink if you wanted to. Um, I would also say that it's going to be highly individual. It's, It's a valid option that some people might be like, no, I'm just not a person who can drink. And that's fine. Um, but it's kind of a, dis- I think it's almost a decision that you have to make in terms of my way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like, you know, there's a lot of celebrities that have been coming out and saying that they have quit drinking and Chrissy Teigen didn't, I think she wrote or promoted a book. Did she write it? Was it her book or did she promote one? Anyways, there's lots of like new celebrities coming out and and promoting that they don't drink and the, you know, clarity and all the benefits that come with that. And then I also think with the, you know, legalization of marijuana and it'll be interesting to see what comes in the coming generations and like what our children end up doing because of a lot more attention, like you've said, and studies that, you know, right or wrong are very much saying the uh, downsides of alcohol. Whereas with us and our generation, like it's very much been set something that's so prominent and walking into like a cannabis store is like new to me. And I'm like, whoa, this is, this seems weird kind of thing, you know? So it'll be interesting to see like, and do you have any thoughts on that? Actually, I have a funny story um, on the cannabis thing. I don't know about you guys, but were your parents like total closet stoners? Well, I, I my dad. <laughs> I think it's so funny that when we were teenagers, our parents were like, it's so bad. I mean, my husband, who, you know, isn't from Canada, he's from Poland. And so very different culture that they grew up in, but they came to Canada when he was 11. And his parents actually wanted to send him to rehab because they caught him smoking pot and they were like, this is a gateway drug. You're going to end up on crack in the streets. And they actually, and now his dad comes over and he's like, can I have some of your weed that you were growing last summer? (laughs) And like, we'll do a zoom conversation with him and he'll have like all of these empty edibles containers on his desk. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 The times are changing for sure. Yeah, it was totally the gateway drug, like a hundred percent. Like oh, that yeah. was the you know dare to keep kids off drugs. Like we all remember those those like pro- watching that in middle school. hundred percent. It was just say no, just say no to drugs. Yeah, black and exactly. white blanket statement. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's funny. That's great. But like everything, it probably depends on your relationship to it, right? Like, do you need it? to wake up and function? Do you need it to fall asleep? Do you need it to like be able to perform your job and reduce anxiety? Like there are so many, you know, and then there's a difference between CBD and like, you know, the, what starts with the THC. Thank you. THC. We're going to yeah. do an interview on this shortly. Yeah. yeah we gotta, right. gotta go you're there. obviously super familiar with all the strains, Nikki. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Not at all. Yeah. Like, Nikki's oh, no, like, Diva. <laughs> 
Siziva <laughs> and something else. Anyway, I, I am like, yeah, I don't know as much as I, as many other people, but we're going to learn. That's why we're here. We're going to talk about it. Yeah. Sure. We just, I've got lots of paranoid smoking pot at the drive-in and feeling paranoid stories. So like in my youth. So that's why I don't touch it anymore. Cause it always makes me paranoid and it always makes me eat so much junk food. So probably was the wrong strain. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, you could probably go into a cannabis store now and say, this is my issue. Can you give me the opposite of that? And they'll probably be able to suggest something amazing. Yeah. But just to go back to, you know, the your comment about, are we using it to de-stress or cope? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's kind of one of these underlying conversations that becomes really important when you're talking about, because you could exchange alcohol with cannabis easily in today's context. There are probably also a lot of mums that are using cannabis to numb out and make it through emotionally. And there's probably even going to be some marketing coming down the pipe along those lines. I'm sure that there are cannabis manufacturers that are going to be capitalizing on the mommy marketplace. Michelle, I have been pitched to promote it as an ad on Instagram. So 100%, 100, and I'm like, I don't know if it's an authentic fit because it makes me paranoid. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) But maybe I just need to give it a chance. I mean, honestly, I am open. I just, I have declined thus far. Maybe I I think in advance of our CBD interview, we're going to have to dabble together. (laughs) (laughs) For for educational purposes only, of course. You could do the interview while you're high. You could try out some edibles. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? (laughs) <laughs> There's literally a store. I'm looking at it out my window. That's They're how everywhere. close it is to my house. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. They're and they're like so engaging. You walk in one near me called Suprat is like a candy store. It literally looks like a candy store. And you go in the branding's like out of control. Amazing. And literally you're like, I just want to buy something in here because it looks so cool. It's, um, I mean, it's wild. Um, but it sounds like what you do correct me if I'm wrong, you could kind of apply to any type of habit, like Mm -hmm. over, you know, the top habit, including like over, basically overindulging, right? So yeah, overusing is is what I would say. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the the space that I kind of exist in, and again, because there's a huge spectrum, there are people who have a problem in a relationship with alcohol or even a problem in a relationship with cannabis that probably requires medical treatment. So I don't want, I don't want your listeners to think that I'm saying that that end of the spectrum doesn't exist because there are people that actually will need to go into a rehab facility. They need medical attention. They need really intense therapy to overcome their addiction. But when I'm talking where I'm coming from is this kind of space in the middle where maybe you've gotten to a place where dealing with the everyday human emotions that exist in life, in our context, in our modern society, and probably have existed for the entire time that humans have been around, that you just find it difficult to cope with any negative emotion that comes up. And that's definitely what it was for me. Anytime I felt any bad feeling was really what it was. It was like, I'm stressed because of my business, uh, or I have to fire somebody, or I had a fight with my husband, or I'm irritated by my children, or I'm just bored. I mean, there are so many negative emotions that come up. And this habit comes from just using that substance, whether it's cannabis or alcohol or cupcakes or porn or Facebook or Netflix or whatever it is to kind of numb out and kind of buffer over those negative emotions. And a huge part of the work that I do with my clients is just retraining the skill of feeling your feelings that kind of comes down. It kind of comes down to that at the end of the day. 
being okay with feeling negative feelings and not needing to escape from them. Totally. And I think that comes from this place that we're in culturally where we're almost taught from a young age that it's bad to have bad feelings. Like we tell our kids, oh, don't cry and just, you know, be happy. And we think something's going terribly wrong if we're experiencing sadness or anxiety or anguish or that our children are. And it's also reinforced by this social media lifestyle where we're only seeing the happy parts of people's lives and it's intensely in our faces all the time. So it makes sense that we think we're supposed to live these lives where we're just happy and peaceful and satisfied all the time, but that's not really the reality of human existence. Yeah. The don't feel your feelings thing is a big one, right? Like, you know, like, you know, you're okay. And like, if you fall down or stop crying or, you know, like, you know, especially with women, it's like, you're not okay to, it's not okay to show anger. Like you can be, you can, and I've noticed this in myself, like, and I didn't even really get that message, but like, oftentimes when I'm really angry, I cry. And it's not that I'm sad, it's that I'm really fucking mad, but like I cry because that's the outlet that I have, right? Like, anyways, that's another thing to unpack. (laughs) Well, and I would say that that's really great that you cry because at least you're feeling it. I mean, back in the day when I was really angry about something, I would just drink a bottle of wine when I got home at night, right? (laughs) which is probably not the best solution, but it was the habit that I made. And then anytime anything unpleasant came up, it was like, oh, the solution is just to drink Mm -hmm. it away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is powerful stuff, big time. Mm. So, okay, you're you're a health professional. This is one question that I had put on the list to ask you. Um, And so I think it's interesting that you can lend a perspective to this, but like, can we just briefly talk about some of the, maybe physical as well as emotional signs that you may have a problem with consumption? Okay. So again, there are definitions that you can look up on the CDC website of what does it mean to be dependent on a substance? What does it mean to have a higher tolerance? What does it mean to have side effects? But again, because everybody's body is a little bit different. There has to be a little bit of inner reflection and like, hey, let's look at how this is applying individually to me. So I guess kind of the top three areas that I would advise people to look into. First of all, are you having any physical symptoms that are directly a result of you know, drinking too much. And again, the amount of alcohol that it might take for a person to start having negative health consequences will probably vary greatly. So I'll speak to my individual experience, which was that for me, my sleep was just awful. And I think a lot of people who overdrink have the same experience, especially it's motherhood and having kids seems to kind of tip the scales in our nervous system. So I think it's really common for women to start having symptoms, even just having one glass. But for me, it was that I would go to bed and I would pass out because I had drank so much. And then I would wake up at three in the morning and couldn't get back to sleep for two hours. And that's a super common thing. Um, And that just became a part of my nightly routine was that I was just up for a couple of hours every night. Um, I definitely had symptoms of advanced aging. Like my skin was kind of like sandpaper and it was dehydrated and I was having digestive problems. So if things like that are coming up, that's a bit of a red flag. The second thing that I would have people look at is their relationships in their life. So are they having any conflicts or is it negatively affecting the relationships in your life? So for example, my husband and I were 
heavy drinkers together for our entire relationship. I mean, one of the things that we bonded over when we first met was that we were like committedly hedonistic and we were just like ruthless seekers of pleasure. It was all about like drinking and eating the best food and fucking all the time. And that was just the beginning of our relationship. And I just loved that. And that's how we bonded. But of course that's not sustainable. Um, But we were kind of like partners in crime with our drinking. But I noticed what started happening was I would wake up after a night of drinking and he'd be like a little mad at me. And then he would tell me a day later that I said things to him that I normally wouldn't say if I hadn't been under the influence. So I was affecting my relationship and I wasn't like punching him or coming after him physically or anything like that. But I was just having, I guess, conversations that were not within our normal pattern of communication, which is typically very compassionate and empathetic and understanding and gentle, but it was less so that. And it's interesting because I I interviewed him on my podcast a couple of weeks ago because I wanted to ask him what it was like for him to be married to me as a heavy drinker. And he, it was not an easy episode to record. I, I I had to work through a lot of shame after that episode, but you know, if stuff like that starts happening, that's another red flag. And then another thing is just that relationship with yourself. So that internal dialogue. So again, to speak from my own personal experience, I was constantly telling myself that I was a piece of shit human because I couldn't get my drinking under control. Like, even though I had this beautiful life on the outside, even though on paper I was highly accomplished and I had checked all the boxes in life, I had the family and the business and the the house and the cars and, you know, all that stuff that's, you know, I guess prioritized in a capitalist society. I had all that stuff, but on the inside, I was like, you're terrible, you're worthless, you're, you're a bad human, you know, that was kind of my daily dialogue with myself. And so that's happening. That's another red flag as well. Wow. It's thank you. Yeah, thanks for For sharing. sharing And, and it's uh, really amazing of you taking something like this in your experience. And now, and especially with the background that you have, and now taking it to help others in a way that uh, is very different, like you said, from AA and, and going to the extremes to help kind of that middle section mm-hmm. of reducing shame and people feeling really crappy about themselves because they feel like they are over drinking, overindulging. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the really the basis for all this work is I just want people to hear a voice that's kind of like them. Back when I was struggling with this, I thought I was the only person on the planet that struggled with it in this way. And I've since learned that it's actually super common for this to be the case. And I just want to tell people that you're not alone and that you're not broken and you're not defective and you don't have to change right now. I just want you to, I just want you to know that, you know, there's a possibility for something else for you and you're going to be okay. Oh, those are really nice parting words. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So where can people find you, Michelle? So everywhere, I'm just my name. So on Instagram, Michelle Kapler, my website is michellekapler.com. And if you want to listen to more of me talking about the philosophy and the neuroscience and the personal life experience of uh, living in an alcohol-free mind and body, you can listen to my podcast, which is called the Alcohol Freedom Podcast. You can search for that on any of the major players. And if you want to get to know me a little bit better, I do have this really great um, 
workshop that I did a couple of weeks ago called How to Relax Without Your Nightly Glass of Wine. And that's available for free to download on my website if you want to check that out. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. And we're going to put all of this in the show notes too, so people can find the links directly. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, guys. This is a great conversation. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.